me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we pray that you would open up once again your word to our minds and hearts. We pray that you would fill us with newfound faith and trust. And Lord, that we would hear you clearly and that our hearts would respond with joy to your song sung over our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Assumptions. Assumptions make you see one thing when, in fact, another thing is actually taking place. I was thinking just this morning, remembering when I was about six or seven years old, I remember waking up at the beginning of the morning and looking down, and to my astonishment, I saw a gigantic present. I was so excited because there was no reason for me to get the present. I slipped out of bed and as a good boy, I walked over to the bathroom and I brushed my teeth because mom and dad had been telling me to do that. I then, with a lot of anticipation and excitement, walked into the room and I went to go pick up the present and then all of a sudden it felt soft. Well, even back then I needed glasses, so I finally got my glasses and I put them on, and then I looked, and to my astonishment, it was my pillow that had fallen down on the ground. I was pretty sad and disappointed. That's an assumption. You think you see one thing, but actually it's an entirely different thing. Assumptions, of course, aren't sinful. They're, they're part of our own human finitude but they often play into our finitude so that they can often blind us to the truth and blind us from God so that we stay in the dark. Our text here in John chapter three presents Nicodemus, who was this pious teacher of Israel, but he had assumptions, assumptions that were keeping him in the dark. Consider how Nicodemus actually begins the whole conversation with Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we know, and we'll stop right there. What an interesting way, a revealing way, that Nicodemus begins with Jesus. It's certainly very different than how we see other conversations start with Jesus. Oftentimes it's Jesus starting the conversation, or when someone comes to Jesus, it's them asking, them a, asking Jesus an honest question, or having a request of Jesus. But here, Nicodemus, he begins with his own assumptions. We know their words of certainty and confidence that actually are bringing blindness or darkness. John pays attention to the fact that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, and it could mean that Jesus was coming at night, or Nicodemus was coming at night to keep secret because he didn't want others to know. That's one possible meaning. Another possible meaning is that John is pointing out that Nicodemus comes at night because there's an irony. The irony of which Nicodemus is a spiritual man of the night coming to the light. And the metaphorical meaning of night and light play out in this passage, particularly in verses 19 through 21, so that it could be that what John is trying to suggest to us is that Nicodemus is coming out of the night, out of the darkness of his own assumptions uh, in meeting the light. 
and it's a story of Nicodemus's assumptions being confronted with God. I don't recommend starting with Jesus with I know or we know, but we often do that, don't we? It gives Jesus an opportunity to challenge us, and it, he does, he, he will bring that challenge out of his love because he doesn't want to want to leave us in the darkness. It's his love that moves him to challenge our assumptions. Because faulty assumptions keep you in the dark. With the loving challenge of Jesus comes the light. So how does Jesus challenge Nicodemus? And I think we'll structure our time together in thinking about this amazing passage that has so much that we can only touch upon certain ideas that are here. Let's look at how Jesus challenges Nicodemus's assumptions, and I think there are at least three challenges that we can look at. Here's the first. The first is that Nicodemus had an assumption which Jesus challenged in regards to the heart of religion. The nature, the essence, or the heart of religion. In verse 1, consider who Nicodemus was. He, we're told in verse 1 that he was a Pharisee. And we learn from the historian Josephus that at any one time in the first century, there was about 6,000 Pharisees. So Nicodemus was of a very particular class, a, a very uh, unique uh, class that was actually admired by uh, most Israelites. They were the, the creme de la creme uh, because they had made serious sacrifices of study and of, uh, of living lives of, of piety. They were, they were a religious party motivated to protect Israel and its religious culture and identity in light of all of the attack that was happening in the first century through outside oppression in which Israel was in threat of losing its identity and its culture. And the Pharisees, they were motivated to see not just themselves, but all of Israel to be a people that was holy. And so they were, in some sense, protectors of Israel and its religious identity. And they were esteemed, not considered better than thou's, but they were loved and admired. Despite being highly esteemed, Jesus brings critique or challenge to the theology of the Pharisees throughout the, the gospel accounts. They tended to elevate human tradition above scripture. They did not express love towards outsiders and sinners. They had a hyper focus on, on ritual, particularly external ritual, while they were missing the, the greater and more important principle of love, love of God and love of neighbor. The most foundational critique that Jesus brings, I think is found here in verse three and then it's repeated in verse five, where Jesus says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And you see the Pharisees, like all religions, constructed a very human way of understanding and connecting and relating to God. They fundamentally assumed that it was they, it was their responsibility to connect with God. They, they assumed that, that there was mostly external, religion was about externals that would hopefully infiltrate the soul. And they settled for signs and practices and rituals and they enjoyed social validation and yet Jesus is rejecting all of these things 
when he says you must be born again. You must be born, another translation of again, is from above. It's not that we reach up for God, that's human religion. The religion of the Bible is God reaches down to us. True religion starts with the change of the soul from the inside and it works its way out into all of one's life. So Jesus says in verse 5, you must be born of water and the spirit. Now this has received many interpretations. There's at least six possible meanings to the reference to water and the spirit. I won't go into the details of that, but I think Jesus is perhaps referencing some Old Testament promises around water connected to the Holy Spirit, such as in Ezekiel 36, verse 25, when he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. It's a metaphorical meaning of water. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart a stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is another kind of description of being born again, taking a heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the gift of regeneration, which cannot be earned, but it is simply given as a gift when we choose to believe in Jesus. Have you done this? Have you experienced the regeneration of the Holy Spirit? It's not a question of, do you do religion? That's not what Jesus is talking about when he's talking to Nicodemus. True religion is the transformation of the heart from the inside. And for anyone that has experienced, you know that that's true. And when we talk about and think about Christianity, the very essence of it is not ritual, it's not practices, it's not buildings, it's not liturgies. It's the transformation of the heart which the Holy Spirit promises to do to all who believe in him. And so we have this first challenge of Jesus concerning the very nature of religion, which would have certainly, it shook Nicodemus, and he didn't really understand anything that what Jesus was initially saying. But there was a second challenge in which Jesus challenges Nicodemus' assumption about leadership. Consider Nicodemus again. He was a leader. He was lifted up among the people. In verse 1, it says that he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. In verse 10, Jesus actually calls Nicodemus Israel's teacher. Literally, in the Greek, it's the teacher of Israel. And so it appears that Nicodemus was a member of this national ruling council. It's often uh, sometimes referred to as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a national group consisting of 70 people. So Nicodemus was part of that 1% of leadership in Israel. It included priests, some of the Sadducees, some, a few Pharisees, and it was led by the high priest. And they had a rulership around the religion of Israel as well as some level of political influence. And so Nicodemus is coming apparently, as a representative of the Sanhedrin, of this ruling council, when he comes to Jesus in verse 2 saying, we know. We know, we have a sense of who you are. We see these signs and we're trying to understand. And here Nicodemus has this sense of this assumption that it's they, the Sanhedrin, who are 
judging or evaluating who Jesus is. It's they're going to decide on whether Jesus is from God or not. Imagine that. Rather than Jesus, if he's Messiah, he's the one with authority. Judging the Sanhedrin, which is what in fact happens in the Gospels, but Nicodemus's assumption is to come to, Nic- to Jesus judging him. Perhaps the Pharisees' sense of leadership comes from their expectation or their assumption of who the Messiah would be. They, they believed they were leading proponents of this idea that the Messiah was, would come in a cataclysmic inbreaking in which the Messiah would lead in overthrowing their Israel's oppressors and establishing a theocratic kingdom. The, the, their image of the Messiah was of victory, of power, of, of great strength. And I imagine that their reading of this, however, was not based on an honest misreading of the Old Testament promises regarding, uh, regarding the Messiah. I imagine that it was act is in fact influenced by their own desire to justify their form of religious or spiritual leadership in exalting themselves above the people. Consider the law, the Torah, Deuteronomy in chapter 17, verse 19 and 20, the the quintessential text in regards to the Messiah and what he would be like regarding king, the king of Israel, the Messiah, the ruler of Israel. It says in, the, in that passage, Israel's king was to fear the Lord, keeping the law, and then it has this important qualification that the king's heart, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. And so the expectation of Israel's king was that he would be a humble man, He would not be exalted in terms of honor or fame or position or power or wealth. He would be not lifted up in his heart. Torah prepares us to expect a king who is humble, humble of heart. In this very same language of being lifted up, Jesus is playing out here in verses 14 and 15, where It says, just as Moses lifted up, it's the same term, the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. There's a lot here in this connection between Numbers 21 and John chapter 3. There's this deep analogy between the bronze serpent and Jesus Christ comparing himself to the bronze serpent. We can consider, for example, as the people were murmuring against God and against Moses, challenging his authority. Even so, in in John chapter 3, we have Nicodemus as a representative of the ruling council of all of Israel, the, the teacher of Israel, in danger of challenging the leadership of Jesus, who is being expressed as the greater Moses. We also have this bronze serpent, this bronze serpent which was set on a pole. And in the same way, Jesus Jesus is saying that he is made into a snake, a sin bearer, and he is lifted up, lifted up high on a cross. That's the lifting up 
that our ruler, that our Messiah would truly have. The only kind of lifting up that he would experience was being put up high on a crucifix. But I suppose the primary analogy that Jesus is making in this comparison with Numbers 21 is just as the people who were under, under curse by a pestilence of these snakes that were biting them, if they would look at this bronze serpent that God had instructed Moses to make, that they would be healed. Even so, Jesus is saying, anyone who believes in him, looking to him and understanding him on the cross, not only would you be restored, but you will be given eternal life. This is, well, Nicodemus calls him rabbi. But Jesus does not give us the option of believing that he's just a good teacher. It's not that we just believe his words. We are to, called to believe him, to believe in him. This kingly humility of being lifted up, lifting up in humiliation, the irony there. It's a far cry from leadership today, isn't it? What we're seeing displayed in our news and on our TVs. We're subjected to debates of unstatesmanlike interruptions and calling one another clowns. One side demonizes the other, vaunting their superior moral knowledge and agendas. But let's face it, both parties, both candidates that we're looking at are deeply flawed individuals, just like you and me are deeply flawed individuals. And we as the church, we as Christians, we must remember there's no party, there's no ideological agenda, there's no politician, there's no social way of doing things that's going to save. No. There's in fact only one Savior. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, have we put it, our vote of trust in him? What you should be looking for is not a leader who's pounding his chest like a gorilla telling us, that he's the best. The true leader is the one who lays himself low by being lifted high on a cross. And so Jesus confronts Nicodemus with this underlying assumption of what it means to be, to be a true leader. But there's a third. The third assumption that is challenged by Jesus concerns the concept of justice. The language of justice is found throughout this text, but particularly we'll look at verse 17 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, there's that language of justice, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Now one of the assumptions of the Pharisees, and it was partly a correct assumption, was a belief in the afterlife and in belief in resurrection. And this can be contrasted, and the New Testament actually does this, extra biblical literature also tells us this, that there was a difference, one of the key differences between the, the Pharisees and the other, another religious group, the Sadducees within, among, within Judaism, 
was that the Sadducees did not believe in the spiritual realm and they did not believe in resurrection. Whereas the Pharisees believed in both in Acts 23, that's specifically mentioned as part of a controversy. The Pharisees, they, within this belief of future judgment, of, resur of resurrection and future judgment, they created an entire system of merit, of obedience and disobedience. Obedience to the law, the law is interpreted by them, brought blessing and eternal life, whereas disobedience brought divine justice, final judgment, eternal death. And notice that Jesus is actually challenging this assumption around justice and it, it being only a future event. In verse 18, he says, whoever does not believe, and these words kind of ring out, stands condemned already. To be condemned already. It undermines this pharisaical assumption that judgment and justice is primarily future. It's a death blow, first of all, to the assumption of obedience and merit. Because if you're condemned already, then it doesn't really matter your level of obedience. You're already under the condemnation of God. So it, it undermines the very system of merit that the Pharisees were, were living under and, and believing. And of course, Jesus replaces that system with a different one, which is you're not going to be judged based primarily on whether you have good works versus bad works, and it's based on a scale. The judgment is whether you believe or do not believe in trusting in Jesus Christ. That is the basis of the judgment. But to be condemned already also challenges Nicodemus's assumption that justice is primarily future. Jesus is indicating that, no, it's in fact, it has already begun. It has already come. It's not just a cataclysmic last day, great white throne judgment. Jesus affirms that it is truly the case. But justice, God's justice, is not only future, it is present so that we are condemned already. What does it mean to be condemned already? Well, I, I think it simply means that you receive what you love. You receive what you love, and, and this is, I think, the, the essence of what Jesus is saying in verse 19. He says, this is the verdict, or it's the word judge. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Now this language of light and darkness is not, I don't think, primarily about moral morality, loving the light, a moral high light versus darkness, loving sin. The light, particularly in John, is about God. 1 John 1.5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Jesus in chapter 8, verse 12, and, again, and later in John, he says, I am the light. So in other words, to love the light is to love God in Christ. And to love the darkness is to love not Christ, is to love everything else without loving Christ first. So if you love God, you get God. That is the reward. If you don't love God, then you are separated from God. 
And that is the very definition of what it means to be condemned. You were made to be in relationship with God. That is your foundational purpose as a human being. But when you don't love him, you get that. You don't get him. And that is the very the, the meaning of what it, uh, the essence of condemnation or judgment. Perhaps an illustration might help show you why this is the case. Go back to my youth, when my fifth birthday, I do remember it quite clearly. I was in kindergarten and I had eight to ten kids over for a birthday party. It was a great celebration, of course, kindergarten, and I remember it clearly. We were playing before, the, before the, the end of the party, we were playing games, and we were playing musical chairs. And even back then, I was a bit competitive. I was down to the final three people, and then the music stopped, and I sat down on one of the two chairs. And Michael Makata, my kindergarten friend, he sat down in the chair just after me, but he had the momentum and bumped me off, and I fell down to the floor. And my mother said I was out. I said, that's not right. How can that be? I was in the chair first, and he pushed me off. No, nope, you're out, Michael. I started to cry. This was not fair. And I went into my bedroom, and I locked the door, and I sat there. I remember this, sitting in the dark. They called me out. Come on, Michael. It's time for, time for the cake. I refused to come out of my room. I remember sitting in the dark in my room, with them singing happy birthday. And I did not come out until all the kids had left and I ate my piece of cake by myself. My parents didn't punish me. Well, why not? I acted, I acted pretty poorly because my own decision of what I chose to love was the punishment in itself. I separated myself from my cake, from my presence, from my for my friends. That was the condemnation. I didn't need to be further punished. I chose my own punishment. And that's what it's like with God. Where we go into our rooms and we close the door and he's there singing a song, singing your song, and you refuse to come out, not willing to sit and have him sing his song over you. We're condemned already. I think uh, we'd be negligent if we didn't spend at least a few minutes thinking about this idea or the assumptions around justice, given that there's so much conversation about the idea of justice now within our culture across this, this time. Jesus' words not only bring correction and direction to our individual salvation, but they do lay out a, a Christian social vision of what it means for a good society. And I just want to touch on two. Two assumptions, even within our own time. The Pharisees, they assumed that judgment was primarily future. But in our own time, secular justice believes that justice is primarily now. And they won't even acknowledge the idea of a future judgment. Now Jesus, just to be clear, affirms both. That justice must be lived out now and it will come in the future. But as we think about justice, human justice in the present, 
we need to remember a few important points. One is that human justice is only and only can be partial and provisional. Sometimes we make mistakes in our attempt to execute justice and it ends up actually being unjust because of our finitude and sometimes because, because of our sin. But even when we get justice right and make a right decision or action, whether in policy or around what someone might have done, even that execution of justice is only partial or provisional. Consider someone who is murdered. What can justice, if justice means giving the person their due, how can human justice bring justice to someone who has been murdered? You can find the murderer, throw him in jail, do capital punishment, give money to the family as part of compensation. But that's not justice for the person who was murdered, is it? And that's just an illustration of the many ways in which human action, human attempts to do just things are merely tokens. And if we don't remember in our conversations around justice that there is a coming future judgment, and it's that act, that future time of judgment and justice of God, that alone will be the time when everyone gets exactly what is his due, where every wrong will be made right. That's justice. Every action among us as humans is just a shadow at very best of that. And it's best if our secular friends remember that. That every action that where we're attempting to do justice and you hear the word thrown around so much, it's just a, a shell of a concept unless we believe also in future judgment. That's one assumption that I think Jesus' words bring critique or challenge in our own moment. But there's, an, there's another and it's that all talk of justice must have the counterbalance of agape love. Our discussions and thinking about justice demand that we also, at the same time, believe in love. Those words of Jesus in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You see, if God was preeminently about justice, then the world would have long ago come to an end and we all would have been thrown into the pit. But see, God is not only just, he is also love. And justice and love are not the same thing. Justice is to give us our due, but love is this voluntary sacrifice in order to benefit the other who doesn't necessarily deserve it. And so we need this balance, this balance of justice and love. Because we must remember that in the cross, justice and love, they kiss. And it's true throughout the scriptures. I will sing of your love and justice to you, Lord. I will sing praise. That's Psalm 101, verse 1. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. That's Zechariah 7, 9. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God, the prophet Micah. Jesus himself rebukes the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11 for neglecting justice and the love of God. If you do a word study of justice and love, you'll discover that 
these terms are, and concepts are paired together throughout the scriptures because they are meant to be in balance with one another even as they are balanced on the cross itself where love and justice meet in him. So what does that mean? Well, per- perhaps it means that for every protest in which people walk a mile calling for social justice, the same people need to walk another mile calling us all to love and to mercy and to compassion and to kindness. Or for every news article that we hear about of the evil that's being done, we need another news article that's talking about loving kindness that is still among us even right now. I think we all need a healthy dose of humility as we consider the topics of justice. A healthy dose of humility, perhaps remembering the words of Gandalf to Bilbo in The Lord of the Rings. Frodo, uh, Frodo said, isn't it, a pil- isn't it a pity, speaking to Gandalf, isn't it a pity that Bilbo didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance? Gollum was this, if you don't know the story, an evil creature. And Gandalf replied, pity? Oh, it's pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. The pity of Bilbo, Gandalf ends. The pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many, yours not least. Let's not be too quick to act with justice without also acting with love. And so we see that Jesus challenged Nicodemus's assumptions. And there are others in the text we just had to skip over. But to Nicodemus's assumption about religion, Jesus says you must be born again. To Nicodemus' assumption about leadership, Jesus says the Son of Man must be lifted up, lifted high on the cross. And to his assumption about justice, Jesus says you are condemned already. And yet, God loves the world and he loves you. Faulty assumptions keep you in the dark, but it's the loving challenge of Jesus that brings light. Now by the end of this conversation that Jesus and Nicodemus have, Nicodemus falls silent. The great teacher of Israel realizes he's got nothing to say, but he has a lot to think about. And we learn later in the Gospel of John in chapter 7 that it's Nicodemus before the Sanhedrin defending our Lord and Savior. And then we see Nicodemus in chapter 19 of John, one with Joseph of Arimathea taking the body of Jesus, a sure sign that Nicodemus himself was born again, a worshiper of the one true God. What about you? What assumptions have you in the bedroom pouting in the dark? 
Will you open the door? Will you come to your own birthday song that God is singing over you out of his love? Will you in prayer and in scripture study and in conversations with God's people, will you let the spirit challenge you and show you his love? Lord Jesus, we pray that you would do it. We pray that you would open our eyes to see the mighty gift that you have given. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his love. We thank you for his words. And we lay our lives down before you. We ask you that you would penetrate our minds and hearts, bringing rebirth, renewal, and that we would know your love afresh today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.